Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Welcome back to the show, and I've got a treat for you because I'm combining two great minds of Amplify Me. We've got Piers Anthony and Steve. Steve. <laughs> well, me and Stephen, of course. Uh, <laughs> no, Piers and Stephen have joined me. And the reason why is we're pulling together resources because we've just started the latest round of earnings. And it always starts with the big banks reporting first. So literally just off the press, we've had City, JP, BlackRock, Bank of America, Wells Fargo have all come out with earnings. And there's different elements of each that we're going to use as some discussion points. There's a big M&A deal tied to the BlackRock one, bit of a strategy shift. There's also JP Morgan reporting its best ever annual profit. Investment banking fees are up again. Then we've got um, lots of other things like strategy changes ongoing at City. City, in fact, even though they reported nearly a $2 billion loss, they're the one who are up the most. So we'll unpack some of that and why is that happening. But perhaps, uh, Stephen, you could kick us off and tell us a little bit more about this headline story around BlackRock. Yeah, thank you very much. And it's good to, good to be here and good to kick off with a pretty massive acquisition. This is a, this is a merger uh, between the two podcasts. So I want to I wanna put in a bit of M&A stuff. And I think Piers wants to lead with some market stuff. So we'll start with the M&A. Um, and this is BlackRock announcing on the same day as it releases its Q4 and end of year uh, financial statements announcing the acquisition, the $12.5 billion acquisition of global infrastructure partners. And they're one of those wonderfully named companies that does kind of what, what, what they say it does. Uh, they do infrastructure investing. And it's really interesting to see this acquisition in the context of BlackRock's wider strategy and also the wider trends in the M&A market and also in, in markets in general. 
So just a little bit on GIP. I think we all know what BlackRock is and who BlackRock are. GIP are one of the world's largest infrastructure investors, energy, transportation, digital infrastructure and water. $100 billion of assets under management. I was looking at their portfolio. Uh, they own things or invest in things like Edinburgh, Blackwick and London City Airport. Uh, quite a lot of liquefied natural gas pipelines and terminals. Um, Biffa, which is the UK integrated waste management business. So it really is nuts and bolts, picks and shovels of the real physical economy. Now, for BlackRock, this is their biggest acquisition since uh, the acquisition of Barclays Global Investors, which I think anyone who knows anything about the industry, that was a pretty, pretty rock star acquisition, bought for 13.5 billion and basically was the basis for iShares. Yeah. Bearing in mind, they bought BGI when BGI had 1.3 trillion of assets under management post-financial crisis. Do you guys want to guess the assets under management of iShares, the uh, index and ETF passive investing division of BlackRock? What do you reckon they're at at the moment? You might have already seen. But... I, I haven't, actually. That's a good question. I mean, I know that the overall... I know they, they've gone back above the 10 trillion as an, an entire company, BlackRock, just Correct. last quarter, back above 10 trillion for the first time since 2021. They did. They almost got to 11 trillion, I think, which was the record peak in 2021. Anyway, came back down as markets dropped in 2022. But yeah, so, but but, but the iShares specifically, what proportion of that 10 yeah. trillion? Is that your question? Yeah. It's got to be, I know it's it's got to be a big majority of that. I'm going to go seven and a half trillion. Do you reckon, Ant? Uh, more. Yeah. I reckon it's about 80% of their UM. It's less. Oh. Uh, so, I, so, so, so my stat is 3.3 trillion of AUM. I, I, oh, I, I'm, now, I'm, now, I'm now worried that my stat's not correct. I'm going <laughs> to go away and have a look at that. You've, you've, con you've confused me. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> suffice to say, that tripling the AUM from this particular asset class. Now, looking at the kind of strategic nature of GIP and this $100 billion of assets under management, it wouldn't surprise me if this $100 billion of infrastructure assets under management starts ballooning pretty quickly under the ownership of BlackRock. Because what BlackRock's trying to do from a strategic perspective is it's trying to be a one-stop shop. It's trying to be, I don't know if you took a look at their earnings, and they were all, they're talking about pla uh, platform as a service, cloudification, your one-stop investing shop for research and everything like that. So to add this big limb of alternatives, which by the way, <laughs> for BlackRock, represents 3% of their assets under management in total at the moment, but 10% of their fees. Oh, wow. Basically, the inverse of iShares, which owns significant assets under management, yeah. but not much fees because it's passive. So if you're thinking about growth drivers for BlackRock, especially when it comes to fee revenue, then a infrastructure firm like GIP makes sense. There's also a wider point on uh, there's a huge well, estimated $15 trillion of spending gap on global infrastructure. 
So what's happened over the last 20, 30 years is lots of money's been piled into tech and piled into kind of private consumer and things like that, just left this huge gap in terms of infrastructure. And I think we probably see it every day here in the UK <laughs> from a core infrastructure perspective. So this seems to make sense from a number of different perspectives. I don't know if you guys have a view on this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially like with that sort of, you know, post-COVID, you know, government debt levels are exceptionally high. Deficits are super wide. So there ain't much left in the coffers at a sort of government public spending level to deal with some of this infrastructure shortfall, right? So I think this is where Fink, Larry Fink and, and the BlackRock boys think there's a there's a there's a definite, you know sweet spot here over the coming decade let's say because there's going to have to be a, a lot of private funding um for 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 all of this i got i got two two things i wanted to talk about and ask you about well one thing to ask you about one thing to mention one thing i wanted to ask is this would make um let me get this right i think this would put blackrock it would slot them straight in there as the world's second largest infrastructure manager um the largest being Macquarie. Yep. Um, but it's slot them in at number two, like immediately. So given how monster massive they are anyway, isn't there a regulatory risk with this deal? What, what's your assessment on that side? Initially? It's a really good question. It was a really good question. I was thinking about this. And I, I might give, if I was a representative for BlackRock, I might give the same answer that a representative for Google would say in the context of their monopolistic position. Now, Google would say, hey, look, we're only 4% of global advertising, right? That's tiny. What? You're not going to regulate us. Amazon would say the same. We're only 5% of global commerce. You know what? And BlackRock will say exactly the same. We're only 3% of global assets under management. They literally said it in page four of their earnings report. So, you know, you're not going to regulate us for that. You know, adding an extra 1% to our AUM base, that's not going to get regulated. However, obviously, it depends at what stage or what tier of market segmentation you're looking at, right? So, if they become a 30% or a 40% player, market shareholder within a particular niche within an industry maybe the ftc who are one of our big 2023 talking points maybe the ftc will take a look i don't know what they'll opine i don't know whether there's anything specifically anti-competitive to the flywheel that blackrock's trying to create or generate so yeah it will be interesting it's one to watch the ftc seem to be wanting to get involved in almost everything so i wouldn't be surprised and they're almost they're, this is a weird one because they're almost even more invested in this particular one. Because look, if they've got uh, take a, it's not a monopolistic position. Macquarie are bigger, but mm. they become the second biggest player. Look, if the private funders start getting involved in infrastructure and start controlling costs and and ultimately, you know, the government is the other player in that space, funding infrastructure, and so. Yeah, there's almost like an added sort of incentive for the regulators to kind of to pour all over this one, I think. Yeah, probably. And I think you could also make the argument the the Microsoft Activision uh, Competition Markets Authority argument, which said, look, you know, Microsoft is not the biggest player in online gaming, and it won't even be the biggest player in online gaming with the acquisition of Activision. But because it is so much bigger, 
than the next ten companies in that space combined. Yeah, you know, it could just put you could just put it push in an extra twenty billion of cash, and suddenly it will be by far the biggest player. And company of BlackRock scale can afford to undercut on fees, can afford to be a lost leader in this industry for a while because it can make up for it with its significantly at significant scale elsewhere. So there's a lot to kind of think about there. Hmm. Cool. Well, look, let's move, move it on. Well, actually, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I wanted to talk about the cool stuff of this deal, which is because <laughs> it's not $12.5 billion, right? But what yeah. I like is the structure of this because often people think immediately, wow, that's a lot of money. God, where do they get that cash from? How do you finance mm. that kind of stuff? But um, it's actually only $3 billion cash, right? So $12.5 billion total. Right. It would be if it... Obviously, it's a long time before this might actually get signed and delivered, but $3 billion in cash and then $12 million of its own shares. So it's a mm. cash equity deal here. So there's $12 million BlackRock shares being put up here for sale. And did what I liked about this was um, seven... So of the $12 million, $7 million would be handed over straight away on signing yeah. of the deal. And then five million would be held back for five years, actually. Um, and then only in five years' time would they get the remainder of that payout, which is that's a long time, five years as a sort of it's not an earn, yeah. I guess, but it's kind of a, an interesting structure. Yeah, and this is and this is one of the things to think about when thinking about MA. Often you think, here comes the exit. Off we go, you know, nice bit of cash in our pockets, never have to think about it again as the as the you know the founding team that are exiting the company. But often you'll get a little bit of money up front, much like this deal. And I think it's five of the GIP's founding partners will join BlackRock. Yeah. And that extra five million is only going to be available if they stay there for five years. Yeah. Now maybe there's a vesting schedule. A vesting schedule meaning there is a you know, once you get a year in, you get a small fraction, two years in, you start building it up etc etc but it's not quite as cut and dry as you know off we go to our island in in wherever <laughs> all right well we have to put that travel pass on hold for the moment but let's spin the wheel then and let's end at uh, jp morgan next because i know there's some different takes some different perspectives one on the banking side uh, and then some maybe maybe peers you can kick us off because they made a huge <clears throat> profit they did they made, well, the biggest profit like ever in the history of mankind, it feels. On, on, on one hand, it was a $49.6 billion profit for the year, that is, for um, 12 months. So eclipsing the previous record. So $48.3 billion is what they landed in 2021. That was their previous record. So they've managed to just eke out um, a win over and above that. Um, a lot, yeah. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a chart I'm looking at. I snipped it out of the FT and it really just tells the whole story. It's a chart of their what's called their net interest income. And for banks, that's like a key, always a key metric. And it's just looking at, um, obviously, banks is about lending and the money, the, the, the revenues they're generating on their loan book. But then that money that they lend, well, where are they getting that from? Well, from their depositors, right? And they've got to pay their depositors an interest rate on their deposit accounts. And what's the spread? between those two interest rates. Um, and, you know, big banks like JP Morgan, there's nothing like a really st steep accelerated interest rate hiking cycle. 
uh, to kind of give them this ability to increase rates on the loans they're giving out, but then be a little bit sort of lax and delaying, you know, feeding those same level of interest rates um, increases through to their depositors. So, so they're able to kind of take advantage of this situation. And JP Morgan have got the biggest loan book. And just so really by by default, uh, their, their net interest income, it's like the perfect scenario in 2023 for them. And I'm looking at the chart. And for like for about, if you look at the five years between 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, you look at an about 50 to 55 billion in net interest income, okay? Interest rates are at zero, obviously lots of volatility through COVID in there, but interest rates through zero. So it's, it's quite hard to kind of get that net interest income looking interesting. But then as soon as rates started to go up in 2020, their net interest income went up to about 65 billion. And then last year it was 88, uh, sorry, uh, I'm going to call that, actually I don't have the exact figure, but it's well over 80 billion in net interest income uh, alone, which easily, easily, easily its biggest ever year. And so really that's the story. Um, you'll remember back the SVB crisis, which was, well, about nine months ago, I think now. Um, but they were the big winners from that, just from the point of view that they're the biggest and therefore by default, the safest, if you like. So if you're worried about banks going tits up, and you're losing your money, well, let's put it somewhere, let's put it in the biggest and the most systemically important. So they kind of won on that front. Uh, yeah. So you, meant, you mentioned SVB there. And is there a theme within the investment banks, particularly when we're talking of charges, there's this FDIC that gets mentioned a lot, that being the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So, so yeah. what is that? And how, how does that factor into these results? And one thing, Stephen, I see with all these results, adjusted, everything has been adjusted in some form, nearly every metric. Um, so, yeah, the FDIC, what, what what's that charge then that they're getting that's linking that to the yeah, SPB well, situation we had? Maybe I'll just cover that quickly because there's some one-offs. If you look at all these bank um, earnings reports for this quarter, there's some very, very, very large, uh, what you would call one-off sort of charges. And, and for example, when I say very, very large, JP Morgan's was $2.8 billion um, for what's being called um, a charge to replenish the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's Deposit Insurance Fund. Okay, $2.8 billion. Um, Citigroup are having to pay up 1.7 billion dollars. Wells Fargo, they're coughing up 1.3 billion. Right, they're all, they're all, all banks are getting tagged for this, and it's all because of the fallout from um, the Silicon Valley Bank situation last year. This is the deposit fund, right? Any, this is deposit insurance. So any person who's got a bank account um, in the U.S., your deposit is insured up to 250 thousand dollars. All right. So if there's an F VB scenario and the bank collapses. You're if you've got less than 250 in there, you're safe. The government will refund you if that money's vanished. Okay. Now the problem was in the fallout of the Silicon Valley Bank to stop another full-blown banking crisis. The um, the FDIC stepped up or the government stepped up and said, "Look, don't worry. We're actually going to increase for two banks." For Silicon Valley Bank and for Signature Bank, 
we're going to increase the deposit insurance to unlimited amount. So even if you've got more than 250, don't worry, we've got you covered. And that was to just stem the panic because otherwise we'd have had many, many, many other smaller banks, you know, going under because depositors were pulling money out of the small guys. And look, JP Morgan, please, please take this money so that it's safe, right? So they they stepped up. Now, the problem is if they're insuring more deposits, they need a bigger pot in order to be able to pay out if and only if there wasn't a scenario where the bank went under and they have to start paying out, right? I think that the I think the law is, I think I'm right in saying the FDIC, they have to have that their fund has to have $1.35 in the emergency fund for every $100 insured. So it's quite simple. It's still a function of that SVB fallout. The fact they said, right, we're going to insure more deposits. So we're going to need to top up our insurance pot here. And all the banks just pay out. And it's based on the size of your loan book, basically how much you, you pay up. So what about what about the smaller banks? So we, we're talking big, we're talking pretty big numbers for these massive banks, multiple billion dollars. And I think you say the shortfall is about 16 billion or something like that, that they need to cough up. Uh, yeah. What about the smaller regional banks? Is this just going to, is this, is the, did they have to pay? I think they do. Well, well, it's a good question. I, I, I believe so. And I think the way it just works is the amount you pay is just a function of your, not your loan book. That was the wrong terminology. It's the, the amount of deposits that yeah. you have, right? So it's just a function of, you know, the bigger you are, the more deposits you have, well, then it's right that you pay up more money because the FDIC is covering more of your depositors, right, than the small guys. I know the risk isn't the same, but that's kind of just parked and ignored, really. So, yeah, JP Morgan are paying yeah. up the most money because they've got the most deposits. There's a kind of almost like a tax, a kind of pay to play. If you want to get, if you want to benefit from the, from the sweet uh, net interest income that comes from the business model of banking, you have to put in a little bit uh, to cover the risk of the, you know, of the smaller depositors. Yeah. And it's, yeah, all of this kind of really is the fallout from the financial crisis to mm -hmm. back in 2008. You know, ultimately, banks, were, as became incredibly apparent back in the financial crisis, banks, uh, not only are they trying to make money from the services that they're offering, but ultimately the, the economic system can't function, like literally can't function if banks aren't functioning. So they're systemically important. And so, yeah, it was banks taking way too much risk in the financial crisis and putting at threat the very functioning of the economy. And government said, hang on a minute, this is this is not right. Banks, you can't just be punting and taking huge risk, you know, putting everyone else's livelihood at risk. So they started to put in place these insurances. And um, yeah, it's like a, it's a tax on banks, you know. Okay, so co coming back into this report, and just to wrap, JP, one thing I saw that stood out is the investment banking fees that they had earned. So, what can we what can we learn from that? Yeah, so the investment banking revenue is up twelve percent quarter on quarter, and that's relatively interesting in the context of all of the discussions that we've been having in twenty twenty three, just about how dead 
the world of M&A was IPOs, you know, it came back a little bit, but not really real problems with the, with IPO markets and M&A markets around the world. Uh, from, I was reading a report on uh, the thawing of the Brazilian IPO market the other day, you know, that's been dead for the last year. So these are global banks and they have global exposures. Obviously, the US is the biggest part of these banks, but JP Morgan, 11%, 12% up relative to the other banks that we're covering today, which tend to be down uh, just because it's been such a tricky year. It's pretty stellar performance. And again, they're almost, it almost feels like JP Morgan are decoupling somewhat from the performance of the other banks because they are that much bigger. You know, they, they, their strategy is so sound. Their leadership is so stable. They seem to be able to perform well in almost any market condition. And look, it's going to be super interesting in 2024. All the news stories that we cover in the deal room, everything is pointing to a, a slightly more exciting year in 2024, certainly from the investment banking side. Obviously, if it's a more exciting, more stable year on the market side, markets revenues goes down and investment banking division revenues go up. So we'll, we'll wait to see what happens in 2024, but I can imagine this number only growing uh, after a week 23. Yeah, well, actually on the market side, their fixed income market revenue was up 8%. And uh, perhaps, Piers, that can kind of segue into Bank of America because their equity traders generated $1.5 billion in revenue. And that was up 12% as well from a year earlier. Um, yeah. But with, with Bank of America, perhaps... One of the things I remember a few months back was a lot of press headlines about unrealized losses, and they were kind of dominating the headlines because the numbers were very large. Let's put yeah. it like that. So what what from the Bank of America numbers that you've seen today, can we extrapolate out from that? And, and is that a focus point? Yeah, they're still being negatively impacted by something that happened, well, actually back in 20, uh, 2021. Um, which basically meant that they weren't able to enjoy the big boy status in the fallout of the SVB crisis like the likes of JP Morgan did. Um, basically, in 2021, they took on, basically took a bit of a bet and, and bought a huge, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of low-yielding bonds. This Because interest rates were at zero. Remember, this is post this is cut during COVID. And look, they took a view that, you know, rates aren't going to go up like ever again scenario. Um, little did they know, and we know at that point that we'd, we'd turn around in 22 and have the biggest inflation problem for decades, right? They didn't see that. And they thought, right, we're going to buy a load of bonds because, look, we've taken, you know, our deposit base has increased. We need to kind of start generating a bit of yield off this. Loan demand had dropped this is a problem with these big banks, right? If you're getting huge deposit inflows, fine. You've got to pay for that, though, because you've got an interest rate on your deposit account. So you've got to make money off those deposits. How? Lend it. But what happens if no one wants to borrow? So they go, okay, we're going to have to start buying assets like bonds that are fixed income you know, yielding assets. So in 2021, they hoovered up a whole load of bonds. So it's on their book, okay? Okay. Um, then SVB happened, and this is what SVB did as well, by the way. Um, but the issue is fine to have low-yielding bonds on your book that are trading at a big discount, 
if you mark to market that asset, then yeah, you've got a huge loss. You call it an unrealized loss. But for Bank of America, it doesn't matter because they're not going to they don't have to sell those assets. You only take a loss on it if you have to sell it. That's what happened with SVB. They were forced to sell their bonds that were on their book and they were forced to sell at a big discount because their depositors wanted their money back. They had the problem with deposit outflows and you got to pay your depositor. It's their money. So they were forced to sell these bonds, taking a big loss. And then that kind of spiral, then other depositors wanted their money out and it all kind of fell over. Okay. No, no issue like that with Bank of America. There's no liquidity issue with them, but they are sat on a massive unrealized loss, but they'll hold the, hold these bonds to maturity and they'll go back to par value and they'll take no loss whatsoever. Um, but in the meantime, you know, during the SVB fallout, it became apparent and it was in the media and they were all over it. Oh my God, Bank of America have got the same problem. They've got a huge um, book of, you know, huge unrealized loss. And of course, the average Joe on the street doesn't, understand the nuances of the difference between Bank of America and SVB, they're told by the media it's the same thing. So, right, that they're not going to deposit more money with Bank of America. They're going to go to JP Morgan. Thanks very much. And so I guess Bank of America, um, yeah, didn't quite enjoy the big boy safe haven status like some of the others like JP Morgan did in the SVB crisis. Anyway, their loan book doesn't yield as much income. That's the long and the short of it. And that's why their net interest income part of their performance isn't as good as the big boys like JP Morgan because of what they did back in 2021. I don't know whose idea it was. <laughs> Let's buy a few hundred bill of these low-yielding bonds, but it's got to be one of the worst trades I've seen for a long time. And just to, just to kind of back that up, I was just looking at the share prices of JP Morgan relative to Bank of America over the last 12 months. So over the last 12 months, uh, JP Morgan share price up 24%. Bank of America's share price down 6%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there you go. It's in the market. It's priced in. All right. Last one then. City. And the headlines look, uh, well, and will be, I'm sure, uh, pumped in a negative light, almost a $2 billion loss, and they're el eliminating 20,000 jobs. But I guess the knock-on effect being in markets that out of all of the earnings we've seen, they're up the most. They actually said that that elimination of jobs will translate to a saving as much as $2.5 billion US dollars. I think I also saw them upgrade their outlook as well going forward. So is this just a perfect um, opportunity for cementing the pivot in strategy, Stephen, if you're the CEO coming out and delivering this earnings report? Yeah, this is an interesting. It's, it's, it's definitely a case of, of getting all the bad news out the way. Uh, <laughs> and we said it the last time we did one of these wrap-ups, the way that the city earnings reports looks like, just the physical represent uh, the physical document the first few pages in the other three banks that we, we were taking a look at are all kind of highlights you know earnings per share dot 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 etc etc uh cities is all about their transformation plan first three slides are all about how we are going to turn this bank around and i mean yeah fourth quarter 1.8 billion dollar loss just looking at its banking revenue 2021 global banking revenue 7.8 billion 2022 5.4 billion, 2023, 
4.6 billion. <laughs> that is that is not very healthy, and I think it's a it's a it's a bank that has been uh, pretty unhealthy for the last 15 years. But one thing I would say, uh, I just want to call out that share price pop that we saw today. The reason why it's up percentage and a half in in the pre-market don't know what it's up now the reason why it's up now is because they pre-announced the 4.6 billion dollar loss last week so they kind of they gave a warning to the market that this thing is going to come out and share price the share price dropped four percent uh so it's only kind of just recovering from that pre-announcement because it was so big 4.66 billion pre-announced last week and that was related to as you said severance costs the fdic etc bearing in mind it's going to be more than a billion dollars of severance costs across twenty thousand employees which isn't bad i mean I, I wouldn't mind becoming an employee very quickly and then just getting a bit of pay a bit, a bit of a payout but maybe it doesn't work like that that share price um do you have it in front of you so how much did their shares decline on the pre-announcement it was, about 3%, it was about 3%. Yeah, okay. It was about 3%. Yeah, it was about 3%. And it's recovered basically most of that today. Uh, okay. So, yeah, market's just taking it in, I think. And then, Piers, anything on well, your side? Well, the classic line from the CEO, Jane Fraser, who was very much brought in to kind of, you know, very much engineer this, this turnaround story. She said, this is um, a turning point, 2024 is the turning point year, and I'm directly quoting, and she said, we made substantial progress simplifying City and executing our strategy in 2023. Let's get all of that, all of these bad numbers and bad news, let's cram it all into this one uh, final 2023 earnings report. Let's just kind of sweep it all away and then, right, clear the decks and, and let's go. And I guess from like sim... What does she mean by kind of simplifying city? Well, they've done stuff like um, it's it's quite interesting. They've they've changed things like their management layers. I mean, because look, when you're getting rid of twenty thousand people or twenty was it twenty two thousand people? Um, anyway, it's a lot of people, right? And so you're going to have to restructure the way divisions are structured, how teams are functioning, and they've basically simplified it. They used to have thirteen management layers. Um, which seems like a crazy amount, but anyway, um, they reduced that to eight. That's kind of basically how they've kind of restructured the divisions. Um, and and they're also interestingly, they've done other stuff like they're now starting to report. They're splitting out the kind of five main, five main parts of their business and starting to report performance and numbers for each individual part before it just like most banks do that but city didn't um so they finally kind of lifted the lid a bit and they're giving us more detail so they're reporting on the markets division separately the banking division the personal banking services and then and then wealth management are kind of splitting it out and letting us know how each unit is performing specifically but yeah it's been it's been a bad time and look if you're an employee at city these twenty thousand jobs they they haven't they haven't got rid of them all yet. It's still ongoing, right? Every week. Um, I know someone, I know a few people at City, and that every week there's more as another rat. The the sort of morale, let's call it, is is rock bottom. And it's gonna it's gonna take until the end of quarter one this year, I think, until they finally kind of get through all of that 
round of redundancies. So yeah, it's going to be tough internally, but she's she's trying to put a face on it that look, the worst is behind us. You know, let's go. So a couple of points on that. I mean, firstly, yes, the morale is going to be pretty low, but thinking about this from a career perspective, if you're often you look at a firm and you think, gosh that director's not going to go anywhere for the next 10 years. And then there's an MD who's well-liked and they're going to be there for the next 10 years. And where's my career progression? If suddenly they're wiping out five layers of hierarchy, you go from being four layers away from being an MD to two. And suddenly yeah. it, it could look actually slightly more dynamic and slightly more exciting. But I wanted to ask a, a, slightly, a slightly strange question. Right? If, you, if you got offered the job of CEO of City couple of years ago it was in the depths of its crisis maybe you got got offered the job before jane got it <laughs> what would you say would you say yes is this is this an unbelievable you know is this a kind of uh, a win-win or a win not lose what what what, what, do, what do you guys think well i was going to ask the same question but from a trading perspective as well which is pretty much the same thing which is out of all of these banks that we've discussed without looking at it from a business perspective which bank do you think has got the most upside wow. in the short term? Short term meaning this year. So, yeah, like you say, do you come in and like absolutely yield the axe? But, you know, like you say, the worst is out and then the only way is up. I don't know. I mean, Stephen, you've worked in this. One thing is strategy. The other thing is execution. Mm. So I don't have experience on the execution side kind of like the strategy they've done but yeah the 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 reality of it, the implementation side i think would be hugely challenging not sure if i'd have the appetite to be honest <laughs> you got it's definitely comes down to mindset or not mindset it's almost like personality i think like how much risk what's mm. your risk appetite because if you're jane fraser she did she was basically running the wealth management side and I don't know. She obviously got offered the job and maybe she thought, well, maybe she never thought she would have a shot at CEO. And it's like, wow, this might be my one opportunity. It's fraught with risk. I and mean, you go and check how many CEOs Deutsche Bank went through in their turnaround story that was going to take 18 months, but took 10 years and like multiple CEOs because they kept failing and kept failing on the execution side. So Big risk, but yeah, you either, it's like your one shot of glory, right? Let's go out in a blaze of glory either way. You either become amazingly, you know, this amazing figure that turned it all around or yeah, you just go. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder whether, I wonder whether when the, when the fired CEOs of Deutsche go <laughs> back into the market and they phone up their recruiter, do they yeah. just say, look, you know, is, is the Deutsche Bank failure a toxic you know, is that is that a is that a black mark or is that a oh gosh, well no one can succeed there. You know, we'll we'll take that as given that you didn't quite do it, you know, and and maybe 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 it's not such a bad thing. Hence the win, not lose. But uh, yeah. I'm not sure I'd take it on. It's like the the Harry Redknapp or the Sam Allardyce uh, football manager. Like if you're in a relegation battle, right? Sack your, sack your manager because hang on, you're at the bottom of the league. Who do you call? Well, you call your turnaround specialist like Roy Hodgson or all these other people that tend to get <laughs> parachuted in when there's a crisis, right? Um, but but yeah, well, who's going to outperform in 2024? Share price. That's a good question. Who's going to have the which bank? 
it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to look past JP Morgan, isn't it? I mean, I know they're the biggest and they had, they've had the best run in the last, in 2023, but such a juggernaut. I mean, but I guess it depends on interest rates, you know, so back kind of back to the macro side, how fast do interest rates come down? That's definitely a big thing for these net interest income metrics uh, for these banks being, if, if interest rates come down faster, that's bad news uh, for banks. But what JP Morgan have to um, sort of insulate themselves from that is that they're, they're seeing more demand, uh, sorry, loan demand um, than, than the other banks. Yeah, so it's being the biggest and the safest, I think still gives you uh, an advantage over the rest in this, what might be the beginnings of an interest rate cutting cycle. So I'd still go JP Morgan, to be honest. Okay, I'm going to go I'll City. i follow you, Piers. I'm You're going to go City? City. Oof. Yeah, I'm going to back Jane. Jane's going to pull it off. It's going to be 12 months from now. We'll sit here and go, what a woman. There we go. Can I, can I back BlackRock, even though it's not a bank? Is that right? <laughs> Thanks. Certainly can. <laughs> All right. We'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much, both. Uh, obviously, a couple points of terminology throughout that conversation. So if there's any questions at all, feel free to just drop us a comment where we share this. Put on me on LinkedIn, but also you can comment on the, the podcast on Spotify as well. So thank you both and uh, see you next week. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Anne.